Glad you're here tonight. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. So open up your Bibles there if you would. We're going to look at the testing of our faith tonight as we come to the story of Abraham and the great hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. The verses are 17 through 19. So once you got it, would you stand to your feet if you're able and we'll read just these short verses together. Hebrews 11 beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Hebrews eleven eighteen. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Lord God, as we move through this journey of the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews, we are grateful for every face that we meet. And for most of us, the faces are familiar, all so far from the book of Genesis, all very triumphant, towering stories of faith, and yet very real people who lived in very real times. And we know that the writer of Hebrews is writing this to encourage his audience, but this is also for our encouragement that we might have hope, that we might grow, that we might have endurance. So teach us faith tonight. Teach us deeper faith tonight in you as we study this particular incredible story of Abraham's test. We lay it at your feet. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Having a tested faith. So, We should remind ourselves uh, as we move through the book of Hebrews and specifically the great hall of faith that we've been introduced to several people so far. If you just peek back, the author has been defining faith in the first uh, several verses of the chapter and then he brought up Abel. Abel brought a superior sacrifice than Cain and was killed by his brother tragically. And we know that the little Hebrew church was under threat of persecution from their brothers, so to speak, That is, their Jewish brethren who had not embraced the gospel. The next, by faith, is verse 5, and that's Enoch. And Enoch was taken up in a sort of rapture uh, so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before he had been taken up, he was pleasing to God. If you were with us, we talked about that story of Enoch's faith, and the turning point in his journey was a, the birth of a son, and that, that birth of the son was named Methuselah. And we talked about how his name means, at least one uh, interpretation of his name, his death will bring it, specifically bring the flood. If you knew that the death of your own child, whenever he would die, would bring the flood, would that straighten out your walk a little bit? I would say so, and it did for Enoch. Then we met Noah. And Noah lived in a time when uh, the thoughts and intents of the heart were only evil continually. And Noah was asked to do a building project. And that was a massive ark. And it was a uh, product of faith. He hammered away and he preached to his generation. And there are many scholars that believe it took 120 years to assemble the ark. And in that window of time, God was calling upon the world to repent. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he kept hammering and preaching and hammering and preaching. 
And we know what happened. The flood came and only he and his family got on the ark. Eight persons and all were saved. And then the next uh, individual we've met is Abraham. By faith, verse 8, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. And remember, as David taught us last time with all of his neat slides and maps and verses, which I will give you none of those tonight. You're going to have to learn by faith tonight. No visuals tonight. But anyway, David does a great job, doesn't he? And, and he took us through that journey where Abraham or Abram was called to leave his homeland and not told where he was going to go. He was just told that you need to walk by faith. And so he packed up and he went. And then the second, uh, you could say, test or miracle in Abraham's life was, you're going to have a child, and that child will be the one through whom your seed will be called, or all the blessings of, remember how David showed us the picture of the stars last week, if you were with us, he showed us stars from the, uh, the location of Hawaii, not the Inland Empire. Inland Empire, about seven stars are visible. But he's showing us what he would see in Hawaii. And of course, when Abraham was alive and there were no, nothing to get in the way of seeing the, the beauty of the stars, it's just amazing to see you know, how many stars he would be counting perhaps forever. And so shall your descendants be. And we know the, the singular problem there was that Abraham didn't have a child and he was old. The, the first introduction to the promise, I think Abraham 75, when the baby comes, the baby Isaac, Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90 years old. And he waited and he waited and he waited. And to wait was a test, amen? Sometimes that's our biggest test, to just wait on the Lord and wait for the realization of the promise. And we know that Abraham and Sarah got in trouble and they tried to speed things up and Ishmael was born. And many of you are familiar with that story. That was more the work of the flesh, not the actual promise of God. But when the fullness of time came, if you will, Isaac came along and his name, the, the Jews might call him Itzhak. And his name means he laughs or laughter. And it's interesting because when this announcement was made to both Abraham and Sarah, they both laughed. Sarah laughed like, really? You know, I'm going to have a baby when I'm really this old. And Abraham laughed too. And so the child was called, he laughs or laughter. And of course, God had the last laugh. Amen. And he always does, by the way. <laughs> and the child was born. And I would imagine that uh, there was great laughter in not only the tents of Abraham and Sarah, but also with their friends and family. And as one writer put it, I'm sure there was laughter in the halls of heaven. And so this little child comes along and uh, uh, a promise is realized and he's a walking miracle and he had to bring joy into their life constantly. And maybe they laughed every time they looked at him or when they called him, laughter, come for breakfast. <laughs> You know, there was constant reminders of this miracle, which is beautiful. But then something happened. Verse 17 says, by faith, and this is in our particular chronology, the third test of faith, but the Jewish uh, scholars say that Abraham went through at least 10 tests in his lifetime from God. But I would, I would submit to you that maybe 10 tests isn't enough 
Because something that you and I need to know, if you haven't learned this before, this may be new territory, maybe it's a reminder for many of you, God does test us. God is in the testing business, and by faith, 17, Hebrews 11, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up laughter, or Isaac. Now, if you're familiar with the story in Genesis 22, you know that God instructed Abraham to take his son, his only son, and of course, we know Isaac wasn't his only son, but he was the son of promise. He was the only begotten, if you will, and he was to take him to a mountain that God would show him and offer him as a burnt offering to God. Now, if you were Abraham and you heard that news from the Lord, that after all this time, after this miracle has occurred in your life, and little laughter is now, you know, walking around the tent and making everybody, you know, have a renewed joy, if you will, now I'm supposed to do what? I want you to take him to a mountain that I will show you, familiar language to Abraham, right? Go, I'm going to show you the place. And you offer him up as a burnt offering to me. And to the Jew, familiar with sacrifice, and of course this is before the temple, but sacrifices were being made before the temple. It was a terrible thing to think through what a sacrifice meant because it was the slitting of the throat of an animal and basically a dismembering of the animal and ultimately a burnt offering meant that you burnt the offering to a crisp. What would be left of that offering was an ash pile. And I want you to see if you could put yourself for a second in Abraham's sandals and imagine, if you're a parent, that you would take your child, you would slay your child as if you were doing an animal sacrifice and then you would set that child on fire until he was burnt to ashes. I mean, that is, uh, it's unthinkable. It's, it's beyond what any of us could even fathom. In fact, it's caused some people to really be hard on God and say, how, how could he ever even suggest such a thing? And why would he ever put Abraham through such a thing? But here we are, and this is the reality, and the writer of Hebrews has brought it up, and we have to ask why. Why? By the Holy Spirit did he choose Abel, Enoch, Noah, and now Abraham. And why this particular story? Well, we've, we've seen there's others, but why this one? Because the Hebrew church is going through a test. Amen? What's their test? Well, they live in a time when it's very hard for them to be Christians they're being rejected by their culture, rejected by the religious tradition that they grew up with. There's a lot of pressure to succumb, to go back to the temple, to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices, to go back to the shadows. And they may be saying something like this, why is God doing this to us? Ever been there before? Why are you doing this to me, Lord? Why are you putting me through this test? I don't understand Put yourself in Abraham's sandals. How could he even fathom such a request from God? But the writer of Hebrews has brought it up because he knows that his audience, his recipients of this original letter are going through their own trial and they have to see it as a test as well. 
And I wonder if you and I, when we go through our trials, can see them as tests as well. Because God does test. In fact, the verse right before us says it, by faith Abraham, when he was tested. And I want you to see the language here. He offered up Isaac. The writer of Hebrews says it in such a way as if it happened. And in one sense it did, because Abraham, remember, he had the knife up. He was ready to do it. And in heaven's eyes, God, or I should say Abraham, offered up Isaac. He was obedient to what God called him to do. In heaven's eyes, he did it. But Abraham was spared something that God the Father didn't spare himself. While Abraham was stopped from killing his son, God the Father allowed his own son to die. What was Abraham's test was God's reality. And there's something else that you and I need to see here, and it's this, that though it was a test for Abraham, there was something very much more going on here. Because Abraham's walk to Mount Moriah, and we'll take a peek at the text in a moment, but I think most of you are familiar with it. When he goes to Mount Moriah, to the mountain that God shows him to go to, that mountain range, that area up there is the Temple Mount, and the, the area encompasses the crucifixion site. And 2,000 years later, a father, the heavenly, our Heavenly Father, would offer God the Son, who took on human flesh, and he would go up on that place where Jesus would be crucified and act out the gospel 2,000 years before the gospel was realized. And get this. What is the Hebrew church struggling with? Oh, they're going through a test, but what's at the heart of the test? The gospel. The truth that God sent his son to die to be the propitiation for our sins that all of the types and shadows are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the Hebrew church is reeling because they're trying to defend that gospel. They're trying to stand on that hill, if you will, and not back down from it and God is taking them through the incredible richness of the scriptures and saying, go back to Mount Moriah, go back to Abraham, go back to Isaac, go back to the offering, and know this, that you're not the first one that had to stand for the gospel. You're not the first one who went through a test and had to make a stand and decide whether or not you would live for this and even perhaps die for it. This is what is before us. And Abraham was tested, and this was not Abraham's first test. As I mentioned in Jewish tradition, 10 tests, but I wonder if that's even enough. And I wonder how many times God is testing me and I don't even realize what's going on. And I also wonder when he tests me if some of it has absolutely nothing to do with me. I want to make it about me all the time. Anybody else? Why are you doing this to me? How could this happen to me? Me, 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 me. You know, people, choirs that are warming up, they're very selfish people. They make it all about them. Me, 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 me. Never mind. That wasn't even in the notes, and there was a reason for it. Anyway, 
Okay, just a few verses if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy 8, 2 says, And you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, Deuteronomy 8, 2, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, verse 3, and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he, may, he might make you understand that man does not live on bread alone. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Proverbs 17, 3 says, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Psalm 11, three through five reads this way. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. That's Psalm 11, four. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Psalm 26, one through three says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. And then finally, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. We've learned recently as we've gone through the gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 4 that when Jesus was tempted by the devil, there's a single Greek word that is used in the Greek New Testament for either tempt or test, and it's a word called parazo. And I've given you the spelling before. I don't think it's significant, but it's just so that you know that the word can be a temptation if it's coming like from the enemy and a test if it's coming from God. And, and teachers have said that what God often means is a test, Satan will use as a temptation. And I think you've all probably heard something like that before. The word test in the Greek parazo means to examine, to uh, test, and you can simply define it this way, to put to the proof so when you're tested, it's to put you to the proof. What does that mean? To see what comes out, to see how you respond, to see what the metal looks like. How far is it refined in the furnace, as it were? And sometimes when you know, we face a test and maybe you realize somewhere along the way that, you know what, I think the Lord's testing my faith here. Uh, if we were to grade ourselves, I kind of wonder where you might be at in your grading system. Maybe when you first start walking with the Lord, you don't even realize some of these concepts. So maybe you give yourself a failing grade and maybe it's gotten better as you've gone along. Maybe you're at a point now where you recognize some things as tests. Or maybe you, you're a little quicker to recognize spiritual warfare in your life or that God may be stretching you in your walk with the Lord. So the term is morally neutral, parazzo test, but depends on where it's coming from. Uh, in, in the sense of the positive, 
You may be asking, what is the positive side of the equation of a test? And why would God put Abraham through something so extreme and heartbreaking as this? Well, there's no doubt that it was a test for Abraham, but there's something more. As I mentioned, it's a powerful picture of the gospel. And I think there's something else going on. Let me add another practical layer. What did the Hebrew church need? Endurance, right? We saw that in chapter 10. I think it's verse 36. How do you get endurance? Do you know how you get endurance? Not when you're sitting on your lazy boy. Now, I'm not saying there's not room for margin in your life. That is rest and the idea of a Sabbath and getting away from stuff and you know, having a little downtime. That's a good thing. But my point is this, that when God knows that you and I need endurance, he may test us at that very moment to bring more refinement into our lives because testing brings endurance. Let's flip over to the book of James, Hebrews, uh, and then James is the very next book to your right. So just flip a few pages over. Let's remind ourselves of what James says about this topic. James is addressing a Jewish audience as well. You might, you might uh, recall that in James 1.1, 1, 1, a few pages to your right, James introduces himself as a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And then he says these famous words. Consider it all joy, my brethren, James 1.2, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Testing your faith produces endurance. Now, sometimes when I'm tired, the very last thing that I want is a test. I want to just say, how many of you remember this commercial? Calgon, take me away. That's a bubble bath. So you get it on the right temperature and you put on some of that elevator music and whoo, you say to the kids, if you knock on this door, you're dead. <laughs> Take them to Genesis 22, teach them about, never mind. Anyway, but you, you need to know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. Here's the outcome. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. Hebrews 10.36 says, you have need of endurance. And it may surprise us to discover that a, te a test of their faith was the very thing they needed. Although, going back to Hebrews 11, sometimes we might say, oh, this is too much. Can I ask you a personal question? Do you think God knows how much you can take? I think he does. I will say to you, though, there's many times in my life when, on a human level, it's much more than I can take. Have you ever heard someone say, well-meaning, God won't give you any more than you can handle? That's baloney. <laughs> That's not what that verse means, by the way. The ver that verse is talking about temptation and that God will provide a way of escape. But God regularly gives me more than I can handle. Amen? But why does he do that? 
so I might give him the handle of my life. See, when it's what I can handle, then I can keep driving the car where it needs to go, right? Or where I think it needs to go. But when God gives me things that are above me and beyond me, think about it. Was this above and beyond Abraham? When God said, I want you to go and I'm not giving you an address and there's no GPS and there's no help with a cell phone, just start moving and I'll tell you where to go. Was that beyond Abraham? Abraham was a man. Sarah was a woman. They were just like us, just people. When God said, you're gonna, you're gonna have a kid when you're 100, was that beyond Abraham? So if you hear people say, and I think they're well-meaning, God won't give you any more than you can handle, that's out of context. Write down 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're curious, read verses 8 through 10. In fact, let's turn there. Let's turn there because I I want you to see it instead of just taking me at my word here. 2 Corinthians 1. I didn't plan on going here, but I think it's good for for us to hear this. So, Paul's writing 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he's, he's talking about the God of all comfort who comforts us when we go through all this stuff. And he says in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. That we were burdened excessively, what's your Bible say? Beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, We had the sentence of death within ourselves. Here's the reason. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Notice how the focus is God. The reason they went through this, that we would not trust in ourselves, verse nine. Verse eight says we are burdened beyond our strength, more than we could handle, if you will. Back to Hebrews 11. My point is simply this, that when we go through a test, God is reshifting our eyes. He is saying to us, I want you to learn to trust me for things that are beyond you. When you're at the edge of the Red Sea and there's nowhere to go, when you're at the banks of the Jordan River and they're flooded and it looks impossible to cross, I'm gonna take you to places like that and I'm gonna teach you endurance. I'm gonna teach you how to trust me. And so God tested Abraham. And this would be the most difficult test of his life. Hebrews 11:18 says, It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, in this little kid called Laughter, which by the time we get to Genesis 22, he's probably either a teenager or a young adult. In Isaac, your descendants or your seed shall be called. Now, if I'm gonna have all these offspring through the child Isaac, how will I have offspring as the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore if he's dead before he has a wife and babies. 
That makes absolutely no sense. So he considered 19, when Abraham thought about the implications of such a request or command, he considered that God is able. Mark that in your Bible because that's a statement of faith. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Get this. Abraham thought it through by faith and said, okay, if Isaac's the son of promise and we've had this miracle child and we're going to have all this offspring as the stars of the sky, then if I cut him up and I burn him, God's going to raise him back from the dead from the ash heap. And some people say, oh, you got to be kidding me. God's going to raise the kid up from a pile of ashes? That better be true, because a lot of you have decided that you are going to be cremated. And all God's people said, yep. And a lot of your loved ones have been cremated. And if God can't raise people up from the ashes, it's over, baby. And to my knowledge, where we're at in the Bible so far, when we get to Genesis 22, we'll take a peek in a moment, there have been no resurrections. Can you think of a resurrection in the first 21 chapters of Genesis? How does Abraham know anything about a resurrection? How did Abraham come? Like, look, You've sat in, under preaching many Easter Sunday mornings and heard about a resurrection and read 1 Corinthians 15 and Acts 26. Why should any of you think it incredible that God raises the dead and you've seen the biblical narratives of Christ rising from the dead? But what did Abraham have? Faith. And in his mind, a pile of ashes because he was going up to the mountain to kill him. Which is an amazing Active obedience. He considered, 19, that God is able, that's faith, to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now that word type is parabole. If you're interested, it's para, P-A-R-A, bole, B-O-L-E. It's the word uh, from which we get parable. It's a similitude, it's a picture a parable is sometimes a story that pictures something else, like it's an earthly story, but a spiritual meaning. Well, here's a living parable. Abraham's up on Mount Moriah. He's ready to kill his son and offer him as a burnt offering to God. And he's acting out a gospel picture. Now let's flip over to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. So he reasoned through it. And he put together that if he had to kill him, that God would raise him. And so Genesis 22.1 says God tested Abraham. He put him to the proof, just a reminder. He spoke to Abraham and Abraham responded, here I am, which means uh, checking in for service, if you will. Ready to serve. Take now 22.2 of Genesis. Your son, your only son whom you love. Isaac, go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. I've mentioned to you the implications of the burnt offering. Mount Moriah is the temple mount. Uh, David purchased the land from Ornan the Jebusite. If you're taking notes, uh, 2 Chronicles 3, 1. 
says that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount, Mount Moriah, 2 Chronicles 3, 1, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. One more time, 2 Chronicles 3, 1. And so Abraham rose early in the morning. I think I would have slept in that morning. Amen? <laughs> I don't think I would have set the alarm for early in the morning. I think I would have put off this act as long as possible. He saddled the donkey, took two of his young men with him, apparently just said nothing to his wife. You could imagine that conversation. Took Isaac, his son, split the wood for the burnt offering, rose, went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. The place was Mount Moriah. Now, if you look at the topography of Mount Moriah, here, here's what you'll see. You go up, when you when you're, do a tour of Israel and you look at the Temple Mount from Mount, the Mount of Olives, which is east of the temple, and you see the top of the golden, uh, the Muslim shrine there, the Dome of the Rock. So it's, a, it's an elevated area there and that whole area makes up the Temple Mount, if you will. And there's debate about where Solomon's temple actually uh, originally was, but that's secondary for our discussion. When you're moving around those parts, you come to the garden tomb and about 100 yards from the garden tomb, so the place where they think Jesus may have been laid, his body before the resurrection, you walk about 100 yards toward the Mount, towards the Mount of Olives and you get to a place called Gordon's Calvary. If, you ever, if you've been there or ever seen pictures of it, it's very recognizable because in the mountainside, it's, or it's like, more like a hill, you're up, up on a hill and then there's like another sub-hill, is something that looks like a skeleton, or I should say a skull. It, it's, it kind of has the shape of these two eyes and like a nose and a mouth. And it's called Gordon's Calvary, or Golgotha, which literally means the place of the skull. And as Abraham is traveling with Isaac and the servants, they park the donkey, probably because the donkey can't make it up the hill, and maybe because he doesn't want to have explained to these two servants what he's about to do. And they start making their way up to the hill. And I don't know if it looked the same way it, that it does today, but perhaps that shape of the skull was still there, which would kind of speak of a place of death. And up he goes. And so Abraham said, five, Genesis 22, stay here with the donkey and I, the lad, will go yonder and we will worship, notice, we will worship and return to you. There's Abraham's faith. If he dies, then I believe that God will raise him and we'll both come back after we worship the Lord. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. John eight fifty six. How did Abraham see Jesus' day? Abraham saw the gospel acted out on Mount Moriah, and I would venture to argue, probably on the very spot where Jesus would die 2,000 years later, Abraham saw Jesus' day. What day? And he was glad. Why was he glad? Abraham saw the gospel. He saw the death and the resurrection of the Lamb of God 2,000 years before it ever occurred and he was probably standing on the very spot. Tell me that the Bible and God aren't amazing. 
Abraham saw it. He saw it in a parable. He saw it as a picture. He probably didn't understand every angle of it, but he saw it. He saw my day and he was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. What are you talking about? Abraham lived 2,000 years before this day. You're not even 50. And Jesus says to them, just to add a little extra layer to the pudding, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to stone him. They knew what he was saying. He was saying, I'm God. And they didn't like it, of course. John 8, 56 through 59, if you want to go back and look at it. Abraham took the wood. Can't help but think of the cross of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son, when Jesus was walking to uh, the Via Dolorosa to the crucifixion site. He carried his own cross. Even Jewish scholars, even Jewish scholars saw Isaac walking with the wood as a crucifixion victim about to be uh, capitally killed. Jewish scholars that don't even uh, believe in the gospel. He took his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so the two walked on together. And I mean, Isaac's a bubbly, fun kid. He's probably laughing. Dad, yeah, Dad, what do we do? And then Isaac spoke to Abraham and said, Abba, literally, that's the language. Abba, Daddy, here I am, son. I see the fire, I see the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You can imagine that the heavy heart of Abraham as he was playing this in his head. But look at Abraham's faith. He said, God will provide for himself the lamb. You could render this, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Don't worry about it. God will provide. And so the two of them walked on together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there. He'd be taking some stones and making like a crude, you know, ancient altar. He arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac. Now Isaac is getting the picture, isn't he? And he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now if Isaac is a late teenager or a young adult, and Abraham is 117, or whatever he is. Tell me Isaac couldn't take him. Tell me Isaac would be, no way. I see that knife in your belt. This ain't gonna happen. Come on, old man. You know, at some point, every teenage boy squares off at their old man anyway. But one thing they don't know about old men is we fight dirty. <laughs> But that's another topic. I want you to note Isaac's voluntary submission to his aged father. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I will yield to my father's will. See, this took two. It took the father and the son to be in agreement. And Isaac submits to his father, allows him to, be, to bind him. He lays him on the altar on top of the wood, a definite picture of the cross 
Long before it was ever invented, and Abraham stretched out his hand, he took the knife to slay his son. Hebrew Christians, do you remember this story? Christians in the Inland Empire, do you remember this story? What test are you going through right now? Did God ask you to build an ark when it never rained before? Did God ask you to take your only son that you love, the child of promise through whom all these offsprings supposed to come and offer him as a burnt offering? What's your test right now? Oh, it's bad. What is it? Well, people at the office, they're not inviting me anymore to Coco's. Oh. Whew. Well, <laughs> now look, I'm not diminishing what you're going through, but do you see the point? Hebrew Christians, this is your faith history. I know it's rough. I know it's difficult. But hang in there. Abraham's got the knife over his son, but the angel of the Lord, and most believe this is Jesus, called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. With the blade poised for descent, the angel of the Lord, ironically, Jesus, stops him. And he said, don't stretch your hand out against the lad. Don't do anything to him for now I know that you fear God. That is a statement of putting to the proof, brethren. Now your metal has been revealed. Not that God didn't know it. Since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went, took the ram, Offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. There's substitution right there. Another picture of the gospel. And Abraham made this momentous declaration. He called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. This place was called Yahweh, Yahweh, or the more familiar rendering Jehovah Jireh. The names of God, says one writer, are windows through which his character is seen. The Hebrew word transliterated Jireh is actually a form of the common ra'ah, to see, meaning God would see to it. He would take care of it. This has a future sense. This is where he will deal with your sin and my sin on Mount Moriah with the blessed Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It will be provided. That's what's at stake here, Hebrew Christians and contemporary Christians. Do you see it? It's the gospel. This is what Abraham was acting out. This is the cornerstone of our faith. This is what we believe the Lord provided on Mount Moriah 2,000 years later. And it strikes me, and I'll, I'll give you a personal story on another level, because the, the main point is the gospel, but I want you to see another practical thing. So my son was, uh, my youngest was uh, trying to figure out college and you know he was looking at all the FAFSAs and the loans and stuff like that. And, and there, were, there was a definite gap between where he needed to be and where the finances were. And we were talking on the phone one night and he said, Dad, I had, I had this weird vision of a ram caught in 
like a bush, like in the thicket. And I remembered that story was in the Bible about, you know, and he was trying to recall where it was. And I said, and I happened to be teaching this at the time, just, you know, happenstance, right? And I said, and he goes, do you know where that is? And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> Not only do I know where that is, I am teaching it, or I just recently had taught it. And you know what that means? It means the Lord will provide and I think he gave you that dream or vision or whatever it was to tell you he's got it. He will see to it. And tonight I'm before you to tell you that the Lord will provide. Amen? Amen. Because in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God is so good.